Welcome back to Within Tolerance Podcast, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Protean Machining. And this week, I'm joined by Michael Sargent of Sargent Research, Gear for Carbon Tactics, and now Flux Work Holding. So welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks, Dylan. It's great to be here. <laughs> I think you covered everything there. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't follow you on social media or, any, or haven't seen your products, where can they find you online so they can pull the stuff up and, and follow along? Fluxworkholding.com is uh, the main place because that's our line of machine vices that's probably most relevant to everybody listening right now. Also, carbontactics.com, which has our line of tactical belts, and gearfur.com, which is um, our line of high-end dog leashes. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely, guys, pull that up. And you're on Instagram as well, right? It's at, at carbontactics, at gearfur, and at, at fluxworkholding. Fluxwork yep. Awesome. So yeah, pull those up if you want to check his stuff out and if you haven't before. And uh, let's jump into it. How did you get into manufacturing? Because you've got kind of an interesting path into machining and manufacturing. And I think it's 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 a really cool story. So how'd you get into it? Yeah, so my background is actually in engineering originally. I'd say I'm 50% engineer and 50% machinist. I actually think the line between those two things is kind of blurring <laughs> as time goes on. That's a good thing, um, though. Sure. Yeah. Oh, it's great for me. I'm in just the right spot, I think. But yeah, I, I'm going to explain a little bit more later why I think that is. But I have a degree in aerospace engineering, and I'm a self-taught machinist. I actually started my business doing engineering consulting. Originally, I was working in uh, the UAV industry, designing drones. And then I also did quite a bit of consulting work in the semiconductor industry, doing motion control systems, some really really high precision in a vacuum at cryogenic temperature, nanometer type tolerances. Oh, wow. Stuff. Yeah. Definitely learned a lot from each of those industries. But as time went on, I continued doing consulting, which, you know, is basically just being a freelance engineer. But as time went on, I started developing my own products and selling them online. And over time, that escalated and ended up taking over the business. And today, the product line that we just launched is Flux Workholding, which is our line of quick change machine vices. But we didn't just start making machine vices. The machine vices were really a solution to the problem of how to make a whole bunch of small parts really quickly as a one-man shop. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I came by your shop a week or two ago. And it was super cool to see your shelf of kind of the evolution of the Flux Work Holding Vice line. You know, it, it was, mm -hmm. it, I, I really think, I mean, that might be a good social media post or something because it was really cool to see how your mind worked kind of in creating, you know, you, you, you had that first set that was just like the collapsible ones and then you had more hardened ones. And it's been really cool seeing how that has kind of evolved into your current line. Yeah. So, the vice has really started with, as a lot of things do, a Kickstarter project. About five years ago, I launched a product called Quickie, which is a magnetic tactical belt on Kickstarter. And we set the goal at $25,000 because I figured that was kind of the minimum amount that I needed either to make it economically viable outsourcing the parts to a, another machine shop or getting my own machine. And we ended up surpassing that goal by quite a bit. And that basically enabled me to put a nice down payment on a brother speedio and yeah. Yeah. So 
let's step back a little bit before Quickie even. So you sure. started with a desktop machine though. So what initially, mm-hmm. you know, you were doing all this engineering contract work. What initially wanted you to buy a desktop machine? And then how did that kind of come about? Well, I was doing a lot of, on the designing the drones, I designed a lot of composite parts, you know, carbon fiber wings and fuselages and things like that for small drones. And I wanted to be able to make the tooling, the the molds for making those composite parts as well. And the little three axis CNC router that I got was able to do that basically using a tooling board for the molds. And it actually works surprisingly well. <laughs> like That's awesome. When, when I bought the, the router, all the examples I found were like just, you know, 2D machining flat parts, but I assumed I could do a mold. And if you're really, really patient, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of router was it? It was a Romax. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but <laughs> I think I've seen them in the community or online. Yeah. And that was, I got that router when I first started the business. So it was about 10 years ago. So I basically just used that router for probably around four years or so. And I actually, you know, the first products I sold through Kickstarter, I made on that router. I I designed products that could be made on that router, (laughs) which was my first product was a minimalist wallet called Flexi that was made from carbon fiber. Oh, really? Okay. So how many products did you have before you got to Quickie? I think, I had to look, I think it was two or three little products. Like we had the wallet, we had a Cinchi, which was a carbon fiber belt with carbon fiber buckle that we also made on the router. And then we had Switchy, which was a key holder that was also carbon fiber. There's kind of a trend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you knew what your router could do well and and you stuck with it. I I totally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I got into Kickstarter mostly just for fun because, you know, back then there was a guy that had launched a potato salad on Kickstarter, like literally give me money to make a potato salad. And he raised like 50 grand or something. I remember that. Yeah. It was pretty <laughs> crazy. So what about Quickie? So how did you come up with the idea and how did you have that mental leap of like, oh, not only can I make something for Kickstarter, but like, let's make something where I can buy a full on CNC. How did that kind of come about? Um, well, I think CNC has always been, it was always in my mind, you know, even, I mean, forever, basically. But, you know, buying, I didn't create the product to buy the CNC, but I was hopeful that it would lead in that direction, you know. Did you have like no. a string of bad belts that you were unhappy with that kind of spurred on that development or, or was there a, a story well, that you can remember that would really steered you in that direction? I just didn't see much, much innovation in the belts that were out there for tactical belts. You know, there were quick release belts, but I just wanted to make something that was cool and worked well and that I thought people would like. It was really just, I thought it was cool. I wanted it. So I... I made it in hopes that other people would want it too. And it worked. And it, yeah, it totally worked. You know, the, I, I think I told you when you were over at the shop, the first prototypes, you know, I paid about a thousand dollars to have proto labs make those prototypes, but they couldn't machine the undercuts in them that were necessary for the buckles to work. And so I said, okay, well make them anyways. I'll put in the undercuts and on my little flimsy 
router in order to cut those undercuts because the machine was so flimsy. I was physically, you know, I hope OSHA's not listening, but I was physically holding the spindle as it was cutting those undercuts. <laughs> you know, I had safety glasses on, like that helps. I mean, it helps a little <laughs> bit, but got the job done. I only had three or four prototypes to work with. I didn't scrap any. And I was able to use those prototypes, and then take pictures and video and launch a Kickstarter project. So, well, that's awesome. And then that's led you to now where you have what, three belts? We have several. It's hard to keep track because we have various different, we have so many different combinations. I mean, there's literally hundreds of combinations, but our main, our main Best sellers are Epoch, which is a trigger style quick release belt. And that's the one that is um, going to be in the upcoming James Bond movie worn by Daniel Craig. And then we have the Quickie. Well, yeah, we have the Quickie has kind of been replaced by another belt, the uh, Cypher, which is another magnetic belt, but it's kind of the ultimate evolution. Best magnetic belt I can make. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good looking belt too. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, it just, it works really well. It's magnetic. It latches itself. It's quick to take off. Its main feature is you don't have to adjust it. Uh, it keeps its adjustment. It's made so that one side of the buckle slides through your belt loops when you take it off. So when you put it back on, it just snaps back into place. And unless you gained weight or lost weight, you don't ever have to adjust your belt again. Yeah. What I love <laughs> the, uh, the, blurb on your website that's like yeah you won't have to adjust it unless you gain weight or eat too much or you know somebody was saying that on the discord about your vices too that all of your i guess copywriting is very real and then that's something oh, that's kind of rare <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's the only way to be these days you know you can't you can't out corporate speak the corporations you know <laughs> yeah so definitely when you're a small guy you gotta take the other route and people appreciate it and it's it's so much easier to just be real with people than to try to put on some kind of corporate facade that everyone knows is fake anyway totally so you started this first kickstarter that's what started you down the the you know industrial cnc route how did you end up with the lathe you have the lathe you know is really because of the existing relationship that we had with the amazon so we had bought the Speedio through Yamazin and, and we're really happy with the service. And I looked at uh, various options and there, there were a couple that were kind of on the same level and the, the service and experience with, with Yamazin just tipped me to the, the Takasawa lathe and it's, it's been good for us. Was there a specific product that you bought it for or that you used a Kickstarter to buy it? Not specifically. I'm kind of crazy like that. You know, just like the first CNC router that I bought, I, I I didn't have a strong particular use for it when I bought it. You know, I thought, yeah, I'll use it for molds. I might use it to develop some of my own products, but nothing firm. It was kind of the same way with the lathe. So, yeah, let's, let's you know, <laughs> kind of jump off the cliff and figure out how to build the airplane on the way down kind of mentality. Well, it but seems I, like it's worked out for you. Yeah, but you know, you need a lathe, you know, if you, if you want to design products, you need a CNC machine, you need a 3D printer, you need a lathe, you need a welder, you need a bunch <laughs> of tools. Lathe is just one of those things on the list. You know, our lathe gets used very little, but it's there when we need it. Yeah. And, and now it's kind of an integral part of making your vices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
And it, it does really well. It holds some tight tolerances. We found out that the, on our vices, the little locating studs that are very important to be precise and round, that we were, <laughs> we were better than the gauge balls that we had to measure them. Oh, wow. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, because we I purchased a couple gauge balls that had a one-tenth tolerance, and it turned out that they were a tenth undersize. And I, you know, I measured a locating stud a couple days ago, and I measured the gauge ball. I'm like, uh-oh, what's going on here? And, you know, turned out the, the gauge ball was the tenth under, and we were right on when you compare it to a calibrated gauge block and check <laughs> it on a surface plate. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's pretty good then. That, that's a, a, a strong a, uh, endorsement for the Takasawa. Yeah. And it, you know, you do have to, it does move around a little bit as it warms up and everything. It's Yeah, like it's any not, machine tool. Yeah, it's not like it's liquid cooled ball screws and all of that stuff. It's It still moves a little bit. <laughs> totally. Let's get into some questions then, because we've kind of touched on a few of them and I didn't want to kind of jump into them, but T5, he joined us on Patreon and he's got a whole bunch of questions that I think are going to be pretty interesting. Diving into your Flux Vice systems, what sets it apart from other systems? And we also had Paulson Performance ask the same thing. Okay. So the first thing is it's small enough that you can put a whole bunch of them on your table at the same time. So you can machine a lot of parts at once. Like when I was originally doing the Quickie belt buckles, my original plan was to throw a Kurt Vice or two on there. And as a, I was a one-man shop at the time, and I realized pretty quickly I was going to spend all my time machining if I did that. So I decided to go the other way and see, well, how many vices can I throw on the table? How small can I make the vice? And so the Flux work holding vice is three inches by six inches, and it uh, has various interchangeable jaws where you can the jaws can go wider all the way up to six inches wide. And it can work as a double station vise or a single station vise. So if your parts are small enough, you're going to put twice as many parts on the table with a double station vise as you will with a single station vise. And compared to the size of a typical Kerr or orange vise or whatever, you can put four or five of our vices in the same space on your table. So, so let's talk like your products. How many can you fit on an S500 table? So people have kind of a um, size reference. So like for our Epoch buckle, it's not the same for Quickie 2. We're machining 40 parts at a time. So that's and, and that 20 or 10 vices? or that That's 10 vices on the table. Wow. On the little uh, S500 Speedio. And like our cycle time on that is 37 minutes. <laughs> Oh man, you're like, even with that kind of density, you, you, yeah. I'm sure you wish you had double that kind of cycle time. Um, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's not so bad now because I'm not a one man shop anymore. Oh so, yeah, that's right. Um, that's true. Yeah. I got JC helping me now and having someone else. Yeah. You definitely want to get for any employee, your employee's going to be useless doing anything else if they're having to change parts out every five minutes. So it's good to get that cycle time up so they can do other things, run other machines. But now it takes me zero minutes per cycle because I don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's such a way to expand your business for sure. 
Yeah. So that's the, so that was the main, the main motivation was get it small. So you fit a lot of parts on the table. And then after that, it was okay. Well, I want to use this across different product families. We have different kinds of buckles. So the jaws really need to be interchangeable ideally. So I can just change the jaws out and switch from doing our epoch buckle to our cipher buckle to our bezel buckle. So I made the jaws so they were quick change. And that works pretty well too, because we tend to run, you know, a few hundred parts at a time or buckles at a time, I guess. So each buckle usually has two or three parts. So we can, you know, you can take an hour to set it up and it's completely justifiable because you're going to run it for a day or two. Totally. So um, what, what can you share with us about your interchangeable jaws? Because, you know, you, <clears throat> I know there was a lot of hesitance anytime anybody mm -hmm. sees kinematic work holding or kinematics brought up in work holding mm -hmm. because there's been such a misuse of that term. Oh, really? So, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it, that is... That is much of a buzzword to machinists as 6061 billet aerospace grade, you know, <laughs> whatever is to okay. like car people or, or, you know, people out of the industry. So, okay. um, so let's chat about what makes it a kinematic coupling. Where did you come up with the idea and then how is that implemented sure. on your vice? Sure. So kinematic coupling is a type of fixture that fixes a solid body in place exactly constraining all six degrees of freedom. So you know, X, Y, Z dimensions, and then also rotations, three rotations about those axes. You can call them A, B, and C if you want. So traditionally, a kinematic coupling does that with six points of contact. And generally, you can perfectly constrain any part with six point contacts. And so my experience with kinematic couplings is that I've designed a bunch of them in the semiconductor industry. And I knew that they were capable of one micron repeatability all day long without a lot of effort. And you can do better than that with a little bit of effort. So I didn't originally use a kinematic coupling on the vice. I used regular dowel pins. And what I found was when I would take the jaws off and put them back on, on my second ops, doing my little deburring cycles, you could see, you know, you can see like a thou or two on a little tiny uh, edge break. And I could see that, that there was, that the parts were not in the same place, but like a thou or maybe two thou, and I would have to update the offsets and get everything to line up. Well, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to just work perfectly. So I went down the long journey of trying to figure out how I do that. And I came up with what I call the flux kinematic coupling, which uses uh, a flat plane on a flat plane to define, to constrain three degrees of freedom. So you're basically constraining the jaw in the Z direction. And then you're also constraining two rotation degrees of freedom. And then the, in the jaw, we have two spherical studs, which then contact a V groove on one side in the vise. That's two points that constrains two more degrees of freedom. And then basically, and then the other ball contacts another pin that acts kind of like a flat and that constrains the final degree of freedom. And so when you put that all together, it wouldn't be, it would really be maybe best described as a planar kinematic coupling where you're relying on the good contact of two planes. So we cheated because as machinists, we know it's actually pretty 
easy to make something flat. That's something we're pretty good at. So if we can make two things that are almost perfectly flat, we don't feel too many consequences of kind of cheating by not having six point contacts. Instead, we only have three point contacts and then two planar contacts. Right. Well, and the thing you explained to me that made a lot of sense is that for load bearing, you needed that plane as well. I mean, it mm-hmm. wouldn't, you know, you try to constrain something that you're roughing really aggressively with a bunch of points and it, it might fail or probably will fail. Yeah. The thing that's holding your vice in place, because we got the same kinematic, cu- the same coupling uh, design on the bottom of the vice as well, is the friction between those two planes. It's the same thing that's holding your vice to the table when you just hold it down with clamps or with screws. That's really what's taking the load. The, the kinematic coupling is really just locating it. Right. Yeah. 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 It was really cool to get to see it in person. And I had no idea that it was also on the bottom of your vices. So not only are the jaws mm-hmm. quick change, but the vices are quick change to a plate that you can make. Yeah. The idea is if um, really we designed it for people that are like us trying to make a bunch of parts at a time and you can make your own subplate very easily and you could tear down the vices. You could tear you could take the vices off, you could take the jaws off, put it all back together, and it's going to be almost exactly right where it started. And that will never be the case with a traditional dowel pin type of connection because a traditional dowel pin relies on clearance. You must have a slip fit. Otherwise, it's a press fit and you're not taking it apart. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, a really cool system and I, I can't wait. I, I ordered one and I can't wait to get to play with it because it's going to be, uh, I, I think for those small parts, it's going to be, a real game changer. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's it's just it makes it so easy because we're using we're using our vices to build our vices. So it's uh, it's so nice to be able to just take some jaws off, set them aside, put on different jaws, run a different part, and not have to change a work offset, and have your parts just you know we have we have one tolerance that's plus or minus half a thou. And it just hits it. Oh, I bet. Yeah. You Especially know? with that kind of repeatability. Yeah. So what we found was, you know, through experimentation that the, the repeatability is under a 10,000th of an inch total. So if you took the jaw off and put it back on 10 times and you took a tense indicator and you ran it up against the side of the jaw, it would not move more than plus or minus 50 millions. And that sounds outrageous to machinists. Then, you know, you might say, well, what about thermal effects, all these other things that are going to overcome that? Yes, those things are going to happen. But the location of your vice and the location of the jaw is not something that you probably have to worry about. We're taking that part of it out of the equation. Totally. And it's definitely a vote of confidence that you're making your vice with your vice. You know, I think that there would be some skepticism if you're using a, a Kurt or something to make your vice. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the original has to be made on, on something. There's no getting around it. But then once you have a few of them, you can uh, start making your product with your product. And we actually are um, making two of our vice bodies on each vice. So they're starting to multiply like bunnies. (laughs) That's awesome. 
So to shift gears a little bit, Ty's next question was pros and cons of working with your wife. And I think he works with his as well. So he's probably uh, looking for some advice. <laughs> oh, it's, it's all pros. Well, the main thing is getting to spend more time with your family. And for me, that's my wife and my two Huskies, which for us, they're, they're basically like our children. If you think about it, you work, well, <laughs> people listening, you and me and people listening to this podcast probably work more than eight hours a day, but let's say in theory, you work eight hours a day and you sleep eight hours a day. That leaves potentially eight hours a day that you get to spend with your family. So if you work together as well, you get to spend 16 hours a day together. So, you know, by the end of your life, I feel like it's, it's like you get to spend two lifetimes <laughs> together. It's, That's awesome. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's kind of, it's cheating the system and getting more. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. When I imagine that it kind of, I mean, I always find coming home at the end of a long day, a, I'm not very, I'm not wanting to converse all that much and I'm especially not wanting to rehash the day. And so I'm sure yeah. with her being there all day, there's, you know, you don't have to yeah, that, rehash the day that she was there with you. <laughs> True. Everything's already been hashed out while you're there. So <laughs> yeah, that must be really nice. Yeah. You know, you know, um, down, you know, I guess downsides is you, you got to remember working with your wife that they are your partner in life as well. You can't just, uh, you can't treat them like a normal employee. You should treat your employees well, but you don't need to, uh, care too much if they get their feelings hurt, but you need to care a lot if it's your wife. Definitely. Yeah. You know? so. so speaking of your wife, she kind of handles the gear for a brand. Where did the, where did that brand come from? How did you kind of jump into that? So that happened when it was one of those rare days where I was at the shop by myself and my wife was home and she took our dogs to the dog park and she had a leash that she had bought on Amazon and the leash broke. And one of our dogs, oh, she, he, he got loose and uh, she, she was able to get him. It wasn't a huge deal, but I, you know, I heard that. I thought, man, these leashes, they're made in, they're probably made in China. Nobody knows what they are. I have a machine shop and I have industrial sewing machines for our, you know, tactical belts that we make. I'm going to make a leash. So I came home with a, with a new leash for her. And from there, I, I started thinking, well, how do I design the best leash? Because pretty much every leash uses about the same latching mechanism and it's not very good. It, it can come off accidentally very easily. So I started just uh, trying to come up with the best possible, safest dog leash with no respect to cost whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> And so we launched that, we launched that on, on Kickstarter as well. And uh, we sell them online, gearfor.com. And one of the unique things that we're doing is for every leash that we sell, we, we donate one to a rescue or shelter organization. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I had no idea. Yeah. You know, it's business, but it's also kind of a, it's a kind of a passion side project too, you know? So. Totally. Yeah. Well, and it's nice to see that like I'm on the gear for website right now. I like that, you know, you've got the climbing rope ones as well, as well as the flat leashes. Like you guys do a good job of diversifying what could be a singular skew kind of product. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, we probably should have diversified it a little less, honestly. That's <laughs> <laughs> something that always sneaks up on you. You add, you add a couple options and it just kind of balloons. Totally. Yeah. So Ty also asked what other machines did you consider before buying the Speedio? Primarily I looked at a Haas mini mill and I came across a video of the Speedio running. It was like Yamazin's promo video. And I was like, tell me more. And I figured that this thing's got to cost a million bucks. Jeff, who worked at Yamazin at the time, came down to Tucson and sat down with me and kind of went through the numbers. And I was maybe too inexperienced at the time to really think of it myself. So I'm glad that he showed me the actual numbers. Now I pay a lot of attention to run times and whatnot, but basically the Speedio just runs circles around a Haas. And, you know, I thought in the common argument I hear from other people, and it was my argument too, is, well, you know, I'm just getting started. I'm just making some prototypes. I only need to make like 500 buckles. And then after that, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so isn't it wasteful to spend more on a machine that's so capable? And the answer is definitely not, because even if you don't need to run the thing 24-7, it will make your parts faster when you do need to run them. So say if you do get a big order for a few hundred parts, instead of taking four weeks to run, it'll take you two weeks to run. And then after that, you can move on with your life and do other things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so that's a it's a great machine. I I didn't actually I didn't know anyone that had one, and at the time, I, I think I think I got one right maybe right as they were starting to get cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there has been definitely a, a change in their market where you know it was like a hundred percent phone or car production kind of stuff, and then now we're starting to see them pop up more and more in people's garages or small businesses doing prototypes, doing small production runs, all that stuff. So it's, mm. uh, it's been cool to see for sure. And, and <laughs> I mean, I, I love the guys at Yamazin, but it is definitely not through any promotional stuff that they've been doing. Mm. It, it's, it right. really seems like it's just mostly word of mouth from current owners or people who have seen videos of current owners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's those rapids really sell it. I think. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. The wrap is the tool change. It, it's, it's a pretty impressive machine and definitely a scary machine. I, I couldn't imagine starting out on one. I, I definitely give you props for that. Um, thanks. Yeah. So I just had the, the CNC router experience before that, but it, yeah, definitely you have to be very careful and uh, methodical about it. It's kind of like teaching yourself to fly. It's generally a very bad idea. But every once in a while, someone does pull it off and doesn't die. And right. So yeah. I, I did it. I didn't die. I, you know, you, you definitely learn a lot. You just throw yourself into the deep end. Like that. And that's, I mean, that's something that most people don't get the opportunity to do. So I definitely feel like my, I was lucky to have that kind of education. Yeah, it definitely worked out for you. So his other question, and this one actually, I think is going to be really interesting. Yeah, full study. So last week, my guest talked a lot about how pre-orders and I kind of echoed him how taking money before you have product in hand to sell can be kind of demoralizing mentally and, and just as can be not a great idea. As, as a creator, 
yeah, well, person, and just like, as somebody making money, you know, if, if you if you already have all the money in hand and then now have to work for a month straight feeling like what is <laughs> it's for free, uh, oh, it can okay. be kind of demoralizing. So his question was, oh. what is your process and how do you handle pre-orders like that in order to keep on track, deliver product in a timely fashion? And he added that you seem to be a Kickstarter wizard. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love pre-orders. They're so powerful. The alternative is the traditional um, model of making a bunch of something, getting them to a distributor (laughs) where they may or may not sell them and they might pay you half of what you really want to sell it for. And they won't pay you for 60 to 90 days after they purchase the item. So really pre-orders make for small businesses just starting out. Like it's, it really opens the door for them to compete with existing larger companies that otherwise they would have almost no chance of competing with unless they have the, you know, the financial backing and the courage <laughs> to, to do that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I, I, I totally understand that. So how do you keep your orders straight? I mean, what kind of systems oh, do you have in okay. place um, yeah. to keep those things straight? Cause it can be, I mean, we, we've seen on Instagram and on YouTube, a lot of makers take the Kickstarter route and it always mm-hmm. seems to be quite the struggle, you know, keeping all of the variations in, in order, color change. You know, you've got a few different colors of every belt. Absolutely. How do you keep all that stuff together? Do you use there's yeah. a what, backer kit? There's a few things like that. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot. So I'll give you the formula. So step one is do not create more variations than you need. <laughs> okay. Okay. So do not make like, 10 different colors of this, 10 different colors of that, because it will explode into a thousand different things. So you can kind of solve the problem at its source in, in that regard. You know, people do like choices, but they don't need 10 choices. You know, it's, it's not going to make a difference. So, so that kind of, that reduces the amount of things you have to keep track of at first, but then on Kickstarter, they give you a backer report, which is a downloadable Excel sheet. And we download that and it basically has their answers to what selections they want. They want this color, that size. It also has their mailing address, their email address. And then we import, we format that a little bit manually and then we import it into ShipStation. Okay. And ShipStation is, you know, pretty good software for generating shipping labels and you know, it automatically generates the label and it pays for the label and keeps track of tracking and it sends the tracking number, you know, confirmation email to the customer. So then we can batch print all of the labels for that entire Kickstarter at once. And then each of those labels, when it prints out attached to it, it has a packing slip, which says oh, quantity one of this, quantity two of that, whatever. And so we print those out and we, I 3d printed a little dispenser for the label. So you can just pull off a label and a packing slip and break the two apart, basically kit your, your package, put everything in there that needs to go in there, stick the label on. And then we throw it in a bag and we take it to either USPS or FedEx. Awesome. Like we show up to. We show up to those places like I, I do like Santa Claus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I walk in and I just have bags of, you know, 
it's you know it's just it's just forty thousand dollars merchandise is all on, on <laughs> yeah, my no back big deal. walking into usps <laughs> i'm like okay these are not trash right okay? these are packages <laughs> oh my goodness that's why we we use clear bags whenever possible so they can't be mistaken for trash oh. it's like here please ship these and it's like at usps we actually we're pretty close to the hub in tucson so i can i can drive uh, back where all the semi trucks go and i just park in a very oversized parking spot and i can throw my packages on the on the dock in the same place that they do and Oh, awesome. And 99% of the time, they'll get to where they need to go. <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys use ShipStation for inventory tracking as well? No, we do not. For inventory, I use an MRP software called MRP Easy, which is a pretty nice, simple MRP software that's completely online in the cloud. Oh, nice. It's, okay. It's not terribly expensive. It's like... I don't know, 50 or $60 a month or something. So, so does that communicate with ShipStation? We don't use it like that. It's possible. It, it wouldn't surprise me at all if it has that capability, but we don't use it like that. So when we get the, yeah, when we get the orders in for like a Kickstarter, I just do it. I basically do it manually. I can look through and see how many of this and that were ordered. And I know, okay, this assembly needs this, that, and the other part. And I just tally up the totals and I basically, as soon as the Kickstarter is over, I purchase all those materials so I can get them in as fast as possible. And then how do you handle day-to-day sales differently? Because, you know, all your belts are more or less online now. Yeah. So that's the beauty of that is it's automated. So we use for all of our websites, we use Shopify. Okay. And it integrates with ShipStation. So when someone places an order on fluxworkholding.com or carbontactics.com or gearfer.com, they all communicate with ShipStation. And that information gets imported. And every day, my wife just prints the labels. And they might come from three different sources, but they all get printed out the same. And then we can kit those orders and fulfill them. And like with the belts, we don't... I said earlier, there's hundreds of combinations. You would never, our business, the way it exists, couldn't really exist without kind of the lean mentality of not having a ton of extra inventory and not making things before there's demand for them. Because even if we stopped one of each belt, we'd still have hundreds of belts that who knows when someone will buy that particular combination. So we, we get the order and then we make it that same day. Which I think is super cool. That was one thing when I came by that I thought was really, really interesting was how lean your operation is. Because, yeah, you've got, I mean, just for like the cipher alone, you've got all your different types of webbing and the different colors. And I imagine that you'd have to have, you know, a full office full of just racks and racks of belts if you wanted to keep any kind of stock of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not so bad. What you really need is you just need a certain amount of webbing and a certain number of buckles and certain amount of shipping materials and those numbers aren't aren't really as big as you would think you know you gotta kind of monitor demand and figure out how much you need to really have of each and and sometimes you get thrown for a loop if somebody buys you know 
hundred belts or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a long day, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but but it beats the alternative of of having lots of valuable inventory just sitting around. Totally. Yeah. So his last question was, could you talk a little bit about how your products ended up in a James Bond movie? Yeah. So we paid them a million dollars to put <laughs> our belt buckle on James Bond's thigh. No, they, they approached us. They, I think they might've bought a belt from us first, the movie studio and they sent us an email and they had seen our website and on our website, I had, I had put, you know, my wife and I like Marvel movies and all, all that kind of stuff. And I had put on the website for our quickie bubble. I said, like, I think you'd have to really look to find it, but I put Stan Lee, if you're reading this, you know, please reach out. We want to give you a buckle to put in your movie. <laughs> I, I literally put something to that effect on the website. And so one of their costume people reached out and said, well, I'm not working on a Stan Lee movie, but I've worked on Marvel movies before and we're working on something similar and we're interested in buying more of your, your belt buckles. Can we buy them? I'm like, well, of course, please. And so they ended up, you know, they ended up buying 70 or 80 of our Epoch buckles and they bought some of our quickie buckles, they bought a little bit of everything. And I sent them samples of everything I could think of as well, just in case. And they ended up using them in the movie. And so our Epoch buckle is worn by Daniel Craig playing James Bond. And it's, and he might have some of our other buckles too. It's kind of hard to tell from the previews. And then Lashana Lynch is also wearing our Epoch buckle and she's wearing our quickie buckle as well. So That's like pretty we, amazing. It's, it's, it is amazing. Like I, <laughs> I was so stoked cause I love James Bond. And once, you know, we figured out it was going to be in the James Bond movie, like not because they told us, but just like using context clues <laughs> of what movie they were talking about. And we kind of figured it out and we were, you know, 95% confident <laughs> before, <laughs> before, you know, a few weeks later, they finally told us, by the way, it's James Bond. And we're like, awesome. <laughs> That must and, be quite the nail biter waiting for this thing to come out because oh I know gosh. it's been pushed back and pushed back. So you must yeah. be real anxious to, for people to start seeing that. Yeah. It will have been delayed like a year and a half, I think. So, you know, we were, we, we got an uptick in sales just because like word leaked that our buckle was in the movie. No, before, well, I think, yeah, the pre, when the previews came out, people spotted it in the previews and there are, there are people that are like their their hobby is keeping track of all this stuff and figuring out well what is james bond wearing where can i buy it how much is it and so we've actually uh, sold quite a few belts to james bond enthusiasts even though the movie hasn't come out yet that's pretty amazing yeah i know there's whole websites dedicated to what is so and so wearing in this this episode of this tv show or whatever so i'm sure mm -hmm. people were quickly looking to find your belt buckles. Yeah. So if there's any costume designers out there listening and you need some cool buckles for your movie, uh, reach out to me and we'll, we'll make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> so t last question was a little bit of a tongue in cheek. Do brother owners get matching tattoos when they join the wolf pack? 
Oh man, I don't know if it's a is it a tattoo or or something else. I think what you get is like carpal tunnel in your left hand from holding <laughs> on to the door handle so hard, just ready to ready to crank it to uh-huh. stop the machine. Yep. <laughs> do you I, do I, that, Dylan? Oh yeah. Well, I, I that is one thing that I love about my speedio and that i have not seen in another oh machine gosh. is how you can use the door as a start stop uh-huh. and how you can just hit go after you close the door again it usually it's... i would be the first one to deactivate a door switch because i hate them but okay. it's so useful in this that case that i i love it yeah the only trick is you know you just want to crack it open just a little bit or you get sprayed with yeah a face full of coolant exactly (laughs) sometimes that happens anyways yeah oh yeah but i thought all machines were like that no 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 (laughs) no. um and and maybe newer ones but all the older ones i've worked on they stop and restarting them if you hit start after a stop or a you know something like that Mm -hmm. it won't restart the spindle it won't yeah you know so you'll just be running a dead cutter into a part not spinning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I that's I figured that out when I got the Takasawa. Like, not only can you not stop the program by opening the door, you can't open the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they should all work like that. I don't, I don't know why they they don't. But, I don't know. Yeah, there's you know. every brand has its little user idiosyncrasies that can be really nice, and I think that this is just one that so far I've only seen on a brother. Yeah, it's really nice. So yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, we get matching carpal tunnel in our, <laughs> in our left hand. Yeah, definitely. And then from Instagram, the CNC man asked, "What's your, what do you enjoy most about machining? I enjoy being able to go from an idea in your head to an actual product, but not just, not just a product or a thing you can hold. Like, you know, you could sculpt something and get that effect but something that you can mass produce it's like you create some value it's valuable to you but then with minimal effort you can then mass produce that item and add that value to the lives of thousands of other people you know it's really it's the being able to basically duplicate that that thing that you made yeah oh totally and it's Unlike 3D printing, where well, a lot of the times the only way to scale something like that is, I mean, you can load up the build plate as much as you can, but then the only way to scale that is to just start making a print farm more or less. Whereas with a CNC, mm-hmm. it's especially, you know, you created your own vices so that you could make something go from prototype to uh, production pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, I would, you know, I'd encourage people to, you know, that maybe you're thinking of getting into having their own machining shop to not just look at doing the job shop type of work, but think about making your own product and um, producing it in mass. Because you'd be surprised what you can do even with, with a limited machine if you're smart about it. Totally. You're, you're, yeah. And, you know, your, your machine doesn't actually cost you $100 an hour. That's a myth. Unless you have one hell of a machine. So if it's in your garage <laughs> and you don't have any overhead, it costs you the machine payment and the insurance divided by however many hours there are in a month per hour. So you could totally, you know, if you put, 
you know, little plug here. If you put 10 flux work holding vices on your Tormach without a tool changer on it, you're machining 40 parts at a time. And even though maybe you have five tool changes or something, you only have to do those five tool changes for 40 parts. So maybe you have a, you know, a timer on your watch or something and you go back to the machine and you change a tool every once in a while. But as long as you're in the area, if it's in your garage or it's in your shop where you're already at, it's really not that huge of a deal. And now your, your expenses are almost zero compared to everyone else that thinks they have to charge hundred bucks an hour. And you can produce some really cool, desirable products that people will pay money for. Totally. Yeah. That's a, a good lesson is that, yeah, I think people get kind of caught in the weeds on how to price machine time and mm-hmm. There definitely can be some interesting ways of, of how you look at the numbers so that it makes a lot of sense to just run a whole bunch of parts, especially if it's yeah. your own product. That just makes sense. Yeah. And the, yeah. And um, on fluxworkholding.com, we have a calculator where you can basically calculate what the cost of your parts is based on how many vices you put on the table or whether you're going to use a Mighty Byte fixture or whatever. And you can estimate what your real cost per part is using the various methods. And what you'll find pretty quick is a lot of times you'll save enough money by using a certain method, AKA our method, that it that it easily pays for the product the first time you use it. And then you have that method available to you in the future forever. Totally. Yeah, it, no. it was actually interesting looking at your calculator because it's not too far off from what I use for quoting. Okay. Awesome. So it was really interesting. Like it is a much more in-depth calculator than most work holding companies will give you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you know, if you don't, I'd say run the calculator because even if it takes you an hour to figure it out, send me a couple emails, make sure you're doing it correctly. It's so easy to save thousands of dollars unless you pay yourself a thousand dollars an hour, it's probably worth your time. Oh yeah. Definitely. Just run the numbers. (laughs) For sure. So before we jump into shop news and new things, uh, you had mentioned 3d printing a couple of times. What does Mm -hmm. 3d printing play as a role in all of your companies and how do you utilize it? For prototyping, you know, for, if we have a new buckle design or, Pretty much everything that we've ever made was 3D printed first, even our vices. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because now I didn't, I, well, I did print most of the components of it. It's not like I was going to use this vice. It was, let's hold it in my hand and really look at it and see how I feel about it. <laughs> see if it looks like it's going to work. And with 3D printing, the, you know, the cost of doing that is very low. You have a few parts, just start them and let them run overnight and they'll be done the next day. And you can kind of have a good feeling for it. And it's, it's really important because iteration is so easy with a 3d printer and it's a lot harder when you have uh, freeform surfaced parts that need freeform soft jaws or a custom fixture to hold. You can, you can make the design change and then check it without having to do all that extra design a new fixture to fit the new part program, (laughs) actually run it. Oh yeah. Buy tools. If, if you change something where you need a new tool now. 
Totally. Yeah. That's one thing I've pushed a lot of people is, you know, it's not the end all be all for everything, but I mean, half the time it's just designing something you print it out and you're like, Oh, it's double the size that I thought, or it's half the size that I thought, or it feels terrible in my hands mm-hmm. or, you know, and it's those things that you don't want to waste programming and machining time on. Mm-hmm. I call that solid work syndrome. When you, I, I use SolidWorks primarily for, for CAD. I don't, I'll use Fusion 360 some as well. But when you just stare at a part for so long <laughs> on the computer, the size gets distorted in your mind and things start to look bigger than they really are. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Actually, my, my business partner, Brad, has kept bugging me and I keep forgetting to bring it up on the podcast, but he wanted my listeners to think about it and come up with a word for that because I don't know how many times him and I will look at a print and look at a model and be like, oh, okay. And then you cut the stock for it and you're like, oh, this is super tiny or, oh, this is really, really big. Mm-hmm. And so I like SolidWorks syndrome. If anybody else like listening that. has a, a good phrase or word for it, w- what is that feeling or what is what is the word for that that scale difference between your mind and reality? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, they need to they need to put more more 3D printers and engineers cubicles so that they can experience this firsthand before it gets sent to the shop. You know, I'm sure you've you've seen this with things designed by other people. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. So, what before we jump off the topic, what 3D printers do you have, and do you recommend them? I have a Creality CR10. Okay, I recommend it for sure. It's good. It's big too. You can do big stuff if if you need to. It has like a one foot by one foot by I think a little more than a foot high working volume, and it works pretty well. I bought I bought it like people started posting reviews before you could even buy them and and it, the reviews are so good that I bought one like just kind of took a chance on it and then got it a month later you know straight from China and I've I think I just got lucky but it's definitely a good choice and I, I don't know if they even have the CR10 model anymore that might be the CR10s or CR10s plus or something like that now yeah I think they've really diversified the CR line there's like the SE, I think they're on the two or the three at this point. There's a, a million models from Creality now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so let's so. jump into shop new things or shop news yeah. or new things. What, what have you got going on? What's the newest from all your companies? Well, I got to think about what I can actually say on the air. Well, let's just say that you'll probably be seeing more of our Carbon Tactics products in the media. Awesome. Um, might be a year or two from now, but you're going to see more of them. That's about all I can say on that. But um, really, we've just been ramping up our production of the flux work holding vices. And so far, you know, every order has basically been a pre-order. We didn't plan to do it that way. But I know I, I told you we made some changes like right after we launched it. Yeah. How's the, uh, the testing been going? Great. Great. So, you know, we did some destructive, truly destructive testing on these things. And I decided that we could make not just strong, but I wanted to make them like in the words of AVE, skook them as frig. <laughs> so we, we modified some of the geometry and we switched from, for the base from using 6061 to using 7075 T6. So instead of having like a safety factor of five, you know, you might have a safety factor of seven or eight or something now. 
Awesome. Because even though we're going to, we put a torque spec on the vice, people will ignore it. Someone will hit it with a hammer. And if they try hard enough, you can break anything, but I want to make it so people don't accidentally damage the thing. You know? Well, I think that that'll be definitely appreciated. I, I'm sure most, if not everyone listening, has encountered a vice that has been over-torqued and damaged, and you just kind of have to work around it. So having yeah. that safety factor is really nice. The good thing is ours is our vice is so, so cheap compared to most vices, because, largely because it's physically small. <laughs> There's less material. So to replace it isn't as expensive. And if someone does damage it, all they have to do is contact us and we'll we'll hook them up with the a spare part at a fair price. Yeah. Which is awesome. And and it's not like you're using cheap materials either. I mean, 70, 75, you've got what Mm -hmm. else in there for the pins and stuff? The shuttles are, so the sliding shuttles are all 17, four pH stainless steel. The, the Dow pins, which form part of the kinematic coupling are also 17, four pH H 900. So as hard as 17, four gets. And then the, Locating studs that are located in the jaws or that you might put in your custom subplate are nitronic 60. So, which is pretty that, great. I mean, it, it's an inexpensive vice, but not due to lack of good materials, which is really nice to hear. Yeah. And really tried to make it really, it's, it, it's an economic argument to buy this vice. You know, we're trying, you, you buy this vice because you want to produce more parts and make more money, but you can't offset that with a really expensive vice or those benefits aren't realized as quickly. So we try to make everything uh, work really well, but not, not just over, not just brute force overbuild it, use the most expensive materials everywhere. That's kind of the whole thing with the, the whole kinematic coupling. You could, you could make a subplate for this vice with a hand drill and it would repeat just as well or almost just as well as if you bought a subplate from me. Which is pretty that, cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it wouldn't, it might not be as straight as you want, but it'll definitely repeat. Yeah. It wouldn't be trained. <laughs> you need to figure out that part, but it, it would repeat. It would go back to the same position every time. And it's because the kinematic coupling does not over constrain the part. You're not, you don't have a Dow pin that's crooked. Isn't going to change your repeatability. Having a locating stud three thousandths of an inch in the wrong place isn't going to change your repeatability. Like that's, that's something that a lot of people don't realize about kinematic couplings is you get that extreme repeatability without requiring the machine that made the thing to also have extreme uh, accuracy. Yeah. That's such a big benefit. And I think it's going to be really, really interesting to get to play with that vice is, I mean, I told you I'm going to be loading it on a pallet on top of my orange pallet system. So having two different types of zero point systems, more or less interacting will be a kind of an interesting test for sure. Yeah. Should be. I mean, for the parts that we're going to be doing in it, I have no doubt that it will be well above the tolerance zone or or well within the tolerance zone, but Mm -hmm. it'll still be really fun to get to play around with it. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you for being an early adopter of of the the product line. 
you know, I, I understand I've launched a lot of different, a lot of different products and it wouldn't be possible without people that are uh, willing to take a little bit of a, a chance on something new. So yeah, I, re I really appreciate you and, and the other people that have already bought vices from us. Oh, it was, it was my pleasure. Like you said, the, the price is so attractive that both Brad and I were like, well, let's just take the chance. Like it, <laughs> we can get it to work no matter what, you know, that's, that's our job. <laughs> but if it works even half as well as what you advertise, we'll be super, super happy with it. So that's, that was the big thing. Awesome. So the last question I ask all my guests is what had, did you research this week? It can be anything from okay. baby stuff to computer stuff, to machining stuff, you know, what, what's been on your mind, what's been in your Google history. So, <laughs> so two things first is internet access at my shop. We are probably going to switch from our Cox cable connection to a 5g internet connection. Oh, really? How come the Cox cable connection, like the reliability of it, I would rate somewhere between bad and very bad. Oh, wow. <laughs> like it's not particularly fast, but the main thing is every few days it goes out for a couple hours and that's really bad when everything you do is reliant on the internet. Totally. Yeah. So Are I people in your complex also finding that or is it specifically your building? I don't know about other people in our complex, but it's, it's not us, you know, we've, we've, worked with Cox several times and it's not our modem. It's not anything on our end. I don't know what they did, but they told us that they don't actually technically even service our, our connection anymore. It's really? Like, we're oh like a mile away from the Cox headquarters and somehow like we have the crappiest internet in town. <laughs> like that's what, that's what monopolies give you, I guess. Yeah, that's insane. But 5G is breaking that up, you know. So we were paying like 105 bucks a month for internet. The quote I got from T-Mobile is $50 a month. And it's like, supposedly, we'll see if they deliver, but it is blazing fast. Wow. Well, that's really interesting. That's the first I've heard of somebody switching from a wired connection to a wireless. Uh, I know I've, mm -hmm. I've got a few friends that are kind of diving down the whole Starlink rabbit hole right mm -hmm. now. Uh, yeah, but I'd love to do Starlink, but they're not open to businesses yet. As far as I know, they're just doing last I checked, they were just doing houses. Yeah, I, I think that it varies too, depending on the, the state and the area. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's really cool. I, I look forward to hearing kind of how it goes because our, our network at the shop, I think we have CenturyLink and it's okay. not terrible, but it's definitely not like my 4G on my phone is probably as fast, if not faster than our internet is normally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true for us too. So even well, if I only get 4G speeds, it's still good. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it'll be hopefully reliable. That's, that's the big thing. That's the hope, but you know, I'll wait, I'll wait a month. I'll, I'll make sure it's going to actually be reliable before I cancel the other connections. So I can always go back if I need to. Yeah, definitely. So what was the other thing you said? You had two things. So I've been playing around with virtual reality lately. Oh, cool. So I've, uh, I have an Oculus Quest 2 headset, which I enjoy. And I wanted to be able to look at my vices and my other products in VR. And then I wanted to throw in, say, maybe throw in my CNC mill as well. Maybe throw in some other 
machines that I'm thinking of purchasing in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I figured out a way to do that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that way is to use Unreal Engine. So it's the same video game engine that's used in probably half the video games out there. And like it's it's the engine that powers Fortnite, for example. Right. The other one is Unity. That's the other big one. But it is it is kind of a pain in the butt to get it all set up. But once you get it all set up, you can essentially import SolidWorks or Fusion 360 models or whatever into a virtual showroom in virtual reality. And you can walk around and you can pick things up and you can throw them. I can pick up a vice and I can put it on the machine table. And I put a UMC 500 in there because I was looking at that machine. I can put my head inside of it and look around and get a sense for how big it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I went to Autodesk University three or four years ago now. And there was a booth there that had a setup like that. And so they had a few different, there was like a office building you could go in and kind of go through the architecture of the Mm. coolest one for me. There was there. There was a coning seg model that you could, you know, pull all the body panels Ooh. off, pull every screw out of every single place and blow it up and look at it and throw it off into the distance and just keep disassembling this model. And nice. so that, that's super cool to hear that you're experimenting with that because that's, I mean, that that could be a very easy, I mean, maybe not full replacement, but partial replacement for 3D printing things even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you get that sense, you know, the, the SolidWorks syndrome. Uh, you can break that using VR because you do like, you really get a sense of how big things are and you can tell like, wow, this is way smaller compared to this other thing that's also in my view or that I'm holding in my other virtual hand. Yeah, that's super cool. So is there already a system in place or is this something that you're developing so that you can do this? It's really, it's kind of like a tool chain or it's really like a, a checklist with, probably 50 items to get it configured correctly. But I'm just using Unreal Engine, just like any video game developer would use it. There's a learning curve. It is not SolidWorks. It's not Fusion 360. It's a little different, but but it can be overcome. I might, I might at some point need to publish my <laughs> list of how I did it because there's not a lot of resources out there on how to actually set this up easily. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be a real game changer for a lot of engineers or, or people designing their own products, just getting, especially if you don't have the time to wait for a 3d printer, even overnight, you know, just to be mm-hmm. able to finish design, push that through to unreal and then put your headset on and see it. It could be pretty amazing. Yeah. I would, I think really, I think it'd be a great sales tool for people selling, you know, expensive items that you may not necessarily be able to see in person easily, AKA machine tools. Oh yeah. You know, so you may not have one, the, you know, the dealer may not have one on their floor. There may not be anyone in town that has one, but maybe you could play with it in virtual reality and they can make a half million dollar sale. You know, that's, that's probably worth paying a video game developer a few hours to, to set it up, you know? Totally. Yeah. Well, and like you said, I mean, if they give you the model of their machine tool, you can throw on your favorite vice or, all of that, throw your part in there and really get a, an idea of like, oh, does my part fit on this? Can I get the density mm-hmm. that I want on this machine tool before I, I make yeah. a half a million dollar purchase? I, I'd love to see it where you could actually run the machine in VR and train people in VR. <laughs> I, I think we will get there eventually for sure. Yeah. Uh, every time I've gone to IMTS, I see 
the idea of like AR or VR mm-hmm. in assembly work kind of get bigger and bigger and also in training. Yeah. And so I think we're, I don't know, maybe five years away from a really good solution for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, th- I think what needs to happen is Apple needs to release their VR system. And once that happens, I think it's going to explode. Yeah. It has to go mainstream. People need to actually have the, the, the headsets at their house or at their business. And there needs to be enough of the same headsets that are compatible so that people have an audience for actually creating these virtual environments. Yeah. It's a a definitely a chicken and egg kind of situation. Like, Mm -hmm. so that'll be super interesting. And that's really cool to hear that you're doing that. Yep. I can't spend too much time on it. I got, I got vices to make, but <laughs> I can, you know, you gotta sometimes change gears a little bit every once in a while and give yourself a break. Totally. Well, in that vein, I'll let you get back to it before we close. I've got some new Patreon. Thank yous. These are all people who have joined in the last week. David, Ron, Spencer Webb, Chris McIntosh, Ty from T5 and James York. I really appreciate you guys jumping on board. For anybody who wants to support the podcast, the Patreon is patreon.com slash within tolerance podcast. Again, we can find you, Mike, on Instagram, Carbon Tactics, Flux Workholding, Gear for anything it. else you want to plug before we sign off? No, just if you're thinking about buying a, a vice from us, go to fluxworkholding.com and buy one. We have a 30 day satisfaction guarantee, so there's no risk. It costs under 400 bucks. Just check out the website and you'll see. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, Dylan. It's been my pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week.